Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We have a lot of end-of-the-year animal news to report to you. Peter, why don't you start us off? Oh, yes, I'm ready to start end-of-the-year animal news. Uh, let's start with COVID end-of-the-year animal news. In the United Kingdom, there is a nonprofit called Medical Detection Dogs, and they are uh, training their dogs to smell COVID, believe it or not. This is a serious business. This comes from the same group that has trained dogs to detect bladder cancer in people and also malaria. Well, it turns out that COVID has a smell and it's been described as a sickly sweet smell by some people. Well, they are training these dogs and they take a garment of clothing, maybe something that someone has slept with or socks, and then they are training the dogs and testing the dogs to smell the scent of the uh, something that's emanated from the infection or from the person's skin that uh, rubs off onto their garment. And it turns out that there's a distinct smell. Dogs can be trained to detect it, and uh, they are studying this and training up the dogs. Fascinating. Yeah, it is how it's going to be used and where this goes, we don't know yet. But you know, uh, like I said, in bladder cancer and malaria and other things, the dogs are really quite remarkable. Oh, a couple of statistics. Like, dogs have about 350 million sensory receptors that are dedicated to olfaction, whereas humans have only about 5 million, so they can work in parts per trillion, which is uh, really quite incredible. So before walking into a store, instead of the employee checking your temperature, you're going to have a dog there that's going to sniff you over, huh? You know, that would be better than that silly temperature check, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, but that's a good point. Okay, Laurie, uh, more fur news from Europe because the fur industry is uh, declining and hopefully will be dead soon. Copenhagen or Copenhagen Fur, they're the world's largest fur auction house. They are owned by 1,500 Danish fur farmers. Well, they're going to close their doors within two to three years, and that could be a signal of the end of the global fur trade. And that's good news. Great news. So simultaneously and perhaps uh, related, I really can't tell if this is a spin or real, is that mink can get a variety of COVID called Cluster 5 variant. And uh, there's a suspicion that it might alter the risk of human reinfection or could reduce the effectiveness of vaccines or something else related to people. So they're making an argument that uh, perhaps this is another reason why mink farming ought to be abolished. So we'll see about that. Uh, but it is true, Lori, that uh, people who work close to mink farms or in them are at a risk to get this uh, mink-related variant of the condition. But the big story is the inevitable decline of this industry, yes. which is great. Yes. Back to the United States, to Missouri, Missouri, uh, they are uh, resuming black bear hunting. Oh. Their Department of Conservation Commission has voted unanimously to allow trophy hunters to kill black bears, despite the fact that most of the people in the state uh, don't support such a hunt. Fewer than 8% of residents of the state have a paid hunting license. That's in 2020. And only about 2% of them state they are trophy hunters who kill animals for their hides or heads or bragging rights. So a tiny percentage of a small percentage of uh, residents of the state has uh, 
gotten what they wanted, the ability to uh, kill these bears. Uh, they are issuing up to 500 bear hunting permits, but they're only about 540 to 840 bears in the whole state and maybe lower. So that could be a real uh, disaster if you care about the populations besides the horrible cruelty. They're allowed to kill cubs unaccompanied by their mothers in this, uh, in this uh, rule. Why did the state rule this way? They ruled this way because there are uh, political interests. And uh, you know who they are, like Safari Club International, have big lobbies. Even though the majority of residents don't want to see this happen. That's right. What a shame. Okay, Laurie, hopping back over to the United Kingdom. You know, Brexit has been uh, criticized by a lot, applauded by others. But this uh, appears to be one positive outcome of the United Kingdom dissociating from the European Union, and that is they are going to be able to ban the export of live animals for slaughter over on the continent. Mm. That, you know, is extraordinarily cruel, the way they transport these uh, live animals. It's a horror ride until they get to their destination, get fatted up some more, and then, of course, you know, that's that. As part of the European Union, they really didn't, have an ability to stop doing this. But now, uh, Environment Secretary George Eustace says we are committed to improving the welfare of animals at all stages of life. Today marks a major step forward in delivering on our manifesto commitment to end live exports for slaughter. It's a step in the right direction, yeah. I guess. I mean, the end is uh, unchanged, but uh, uh, you got to get there somehow. Yeah. Peter, this brings up a good point, because I think the average person doesn't think about the cruelty of the transport inherent in the whole slaughter meat production. Yeah, including transporting horses to Mexico and Canada. Miles and miles. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they're giving them water and food or anything like right. that. It's just, it's just got to be a nightmare. Okay, an end of the year uh, story on plastics. A uh, report from the group Oceana. Uh, did you know, Lori, that 15 million metric tons of plastic floods into our oceans every year? Hmm. Two garbage trucks worth of plastic entering the ocean every minute, and the United States generates a huge percentage of that. Uh, the group Oceana did a study of uh, studies to see how animals are affected by all this uh, waste. And as expected, many species listed as endangered or threatened under the Endangered Species Act are being harmed and killed by a plastic. They consume it or they get entangled in it. And what they've done is sort of collate the uh, research. The stories are heartbreaking. We've heard them all before, and I won't go through all, all of them. But they're asking folks to ask their representatives to vote for a bill that would phase out certain single-use plastics and shift the burden of plastic waste to the companies producing it. Now, that's an interesting idea. You know, you've got electronic waste in TVs. You've got to pay to throw your computer out. Uh, maybe uh, that's what they mean by burden shifting. Anyway, these single-use plastics are uh, everywhere and uh, need to be dealt with better than we are now, don't you think? Peter, why don't you give the listeners some examples, and I'm going to walk out. <laughs> You're going to walk out? Yes, I'm going to walk out. Are I don't gonna, want to listen I'm to hungry. This. Can you come back with <laughs> Okay, I'll come back with the snack something. for you. Give okay. me 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Okay, as I mentioned, ingestion is the biggest thing that they are uh, seeing, such as uh, bags, balloons, fishing lines, plastic sheeting, and food wrappers. 
There were reports of a plastic bag being wrapped around an animal's neck. And there's a description of a packing strap wrapped around the neck of a nursing seal. And so you've got interference with the ability to feed, uh, resulting in starvation, death, drowning, and uh, just a big mess. Lori, you're back. Here's your piece of pizza. <laughs> pizza? No. You know, I know the horrors that plastics do to our animals, and I've heard these stories before. That's why I wanted you to report on this story. However, one cannot minimize the tremendous damage plastics do to our oceans. So thank you for reporting on that. Okay. And allowing me to excuse myself <laughs> while you do. Peter, tragic news last week. This is from World Animal News. 97 pilot whales and three dolphins died in a mass stranding on a remote Chatham Island beach. That's part of New Zealand. The New Zealand Department of Conservation explained on its website that bad weather and rough seas with dirty water, reduced visibility, and sonar effectiveness could confuse whales and dolphins. They go on. Mistakes while chasing prey in shallow waters are thought to be a major cause of strandings for orcas and dolphins. Conversely, large predators such as orcas might cause other marine mammals to panic and strand. The largest recorded mass stranding in New Zealand was in 1918 when an estimated 651,000 pilot whales stranded on the Chatham Islands. Mm. You know, I hate to hear these stories. I guess it's a natural phenomenon, probably, but still, it's always very sad to hear about. So you know? sad. And, uh, and, you know, I haven't heard any stories about the U.S. Navy and their escapades on the Pacific coast with the sonar interfering with the lives of our marine mammals. I wonder what's going on there. That's such a good point. Yeah, nothing new. Maybe they're keeping it under wraps. Yeah. Hmm. A survey from MetLife and Civic Science, which found that the holidays have nearly half of pet parents concerned. In fact, 46% of full-time employed pet owners surveyed are worried about their pet's health during the holidays, with top concerns being their pet may accidentally eat something poisonous. 16% people worried about that. Yes, that's a real legitimate concern that your pet might ingest something toxic or poisonous. 14% are worried that they may not have access to their veterinarian due to closures during the holidays. And that's always a potential problem during this season. And or 13% are worried there'll be an accidental emergency. The survey also found that one in five full-time employee pet owners, that's 18%, say they spend the majority of their money on veterinary costs. Wow, yeah. Keep your pets and yourself safe during this holiday season. Last week, we broadcast a great discussion with veterinarian Robert Reed about how to keep our companion animals safe during the holidays. There are many ingestion hazards, both food items like chocolate and other objects like tinsel, tree ornaments, and the water under the tree. You can listen to these holiday safety tips by going to animalstodayradio.com and in the search box, type in holiday safety tips and you'll see that show and you can listen to any of our prior shows on animalstodayradio.com this show is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization advancing the interests of animals so hey if you like what you hear consider making a donation to help us continue the broadcast of this show 
Go to AIanimals.org, that's AIanimals.org, and click on Support Us. And thanks for your support. Okay, we'll be right back. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter, I don't have to tell you that New York's wonderful governor, Governor Cuomo, is closing indoor dining once again in New York City. He's forcing restaurant owners to close their business again. Okay, and I also don't have to tell you that New York City has become a rat infested, right? I knew about that. According to the pest control company Orkin, New York City is yet again number three in their rankings for America's rattiest cities. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. You want to guess where we're in the number one and two spots? Uh, Los Angeles? Yep. And? Oh, uh, Chicago? Right. Uh, hey, beautiful. <laughs> Orkin stated in a press release last week, as reported in the spring, the pandemic-driven closure of restaurants forced rodents to find new food sources. Without food waste to consume, these pests were seen scavenging new areas and exhibiting unusual or aggressive behavior. The CDC warns of aggressive cannibal rats facing shortage of garbage to eat. Well, at the Washington Heights Chipotle, these rats are attacking employees, they say, chewing through wiring systems and causing the indefinite closure of the restaurant to the public. So I guess if Cuomo doesn't shut your restaurant down in New York City, the rats will. And technically, since the closed restaurants are Cuomo's doing, and the rats are stemming from the closed restaurants, one could argue that the rats are Cuomo's fault as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is from The Guardian. It's pure chaos every time a rat appears, employee Melvin Polino told the New York Post, speaking of the brazen behavior of the rats. He goes on, although the restaurant, this is Chipotle, is closed, staff are still regularly coming in to clean in an effort to get rid of the infestation. This includes some pretty serious survival tactics, including stomping on rats and whacking them with broom handles. That's horrible. Makes it sound like these are man-eating rats, and if you don't kill them, they'll kill you. That's silly and not nice. Apparently, rats like avocados. When they first discovered the infestation, Chipotle employees would find partly eaten avocados. And the rats were liking the avocados so much that Chipotle had to move all the avocados to the freezer. I didn't know you could freeze avocados. Mm. And then, apparently, Chipotle decided to close that location after the rats chewed through the wiring of its computer system so they were no longer able to handle the incoming orders. You know, my heart goes out to these small business owners, and and it's no wonder why people are fleeing from New York, right? And some people oppose the $15 minimum wage. Just imagine those folks with their broom handles. That's horrible. It's horrible. A report from the Partnership for New York City estimates a third of small businesses will close permanently. The food service business has felt much of the brunt. So, really sad. It's interesting to think about these urban ecosystems of, of animals uh, that you don't really think about that much, how uh, there's 
a whole network happening sort of out of you. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the rat-infested cities. Okay. Here's the list from Orkin. The top 10 rattiest cities. Number one, Chicago. Number two, Los Angeles, like you predicted. Number three, New York. Number four, Washington, D.C. Five is San Francisco. Six is Detroit. Seven is Philadelphia. Eight, Baltimore. Nine, Denver. Ten, Minneapolis. Mm. Speaking of rats, there's a giant African pouched rat named Magawa. Do you know about Magawa? No, but I know about giant African pouched rats. They're cute. This is a nicer variety. Anyway, Magawa is considered one of many hero giant rats, and he just won the animal gold medal for sniffing out landmines in Cambodia. The gold medal is actually the PDSA gold medal. The PDSA gold medal is an animal bravery award that acknowledges the bravery and devotion to duty of animals. It was created by the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals in 2001. The award is considered the animal equivalent of the George Cross, a decoration for heroism. And you can go online and you can see, these are so darn cute, pictures of Magawa, the giant hero rat, and in one particular video, it shows something in his little hands, which he's eating, and there's a little gold medal around oh, his cute. neck. Oh. <laughs> Magawa has discovered 39 landmines and 28 items of unexploded ordnance in the past seven years, and he's cleared more than 141,000 square meters of land, the equivalent of some 20 soccer fields. Giant African pouch rats are best suited for landmine clearance because of their African origins and lifespan up to eight years. Their size allows the rats to walk across minefields without triggering the explosives and do it much more quickly than people can. These videos are put out by Apopo. Peter, you interviewed Apopo, didn't you? Yeah, great group. Apopo is an acronym from Dutch. Well, I'm not going to pronounce that, but I'll pronounce the English version, which is Anti-Personnel Landmines Detection Product Development. Spell Apopo. A-P-O-P-O. And that's where people can search to see more pictures. Right. right? And, and is this the organization that has these rats on with their little harnesses? On? Yes, it's adorable. Yeah. Apopo's tagline, I think it's their tagline, is Apopo trains rats to save lives. Yeah. Their operation headquarters, including their training and research centers, are in Tanzania. And again, I encourage you to check out the videos put out by Apopo. You'll see Magawa, who just won the award, and other hero rats being loved and pet. And these rats are so well cared for and having a grand old time, better than being bludgeoned to death by a broom handle in New yeah. York City's Chipotle restaurant. Many countries suffer from land mine contamination and they block agriculture and development and access to basic needs and cause over 3,000 global casualties every year, of which 80% are innocent civilians and 46% are children. Apopo finds and clears landmines by using conventional methods like metal detectors and the innovative landmine detecting hero rats. And the rats are taught to scratch the ground when they find the mine. Then a deminer comes and destroys the existing landmine. Mm. So Apopo has helped thousands of people 
back on their lands and save hundreds of lives. That's great. So the Cambodian people can now go on their property and plant crops. That's great. I wonder if they've published a children's book about these rats. It would be quite a fun book to read to a kid, you know? Oh, that's such a great idea. Yeah. Have you ever canceled your plans with your friends or family or anyone to stay at home with your dog or cat? Who's got plans? Of, of course we have, since we like animals more than most people. Anyway, Wisdom Health Genetics just published their 2020 pet consensus survey, which explored the human pet bond. There were more than 13,000 pet owners participated in the study, which made up roughly 25,000 dogs and 6,000 cats. One of the biggest things they noted was that 72% of dog owners admitted that they'd previously canceled plans in order to stay home with their pets. For cat owners, that number was lower at 32%, and no surprise that the majority of participants said their pets as being akin to either family or furry children. 99% of dog owners, as well as 96% of cat owners, all say their pets are bright and cheery influences on their mental health. And that three quarters of pet owners have noted that the main reason they got their pets in the first place was to have someone to hang out with. More with Animals Today right after the break. The Society of the United States reports that the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, just a few weeks ago began gathering and removing wild horses from land in Utah with the intention of performing sterilization surgeries on them. And while it's true that there is a long-standing and serious overpopulation problem of wild horses in burrows in the American West, performing invasive surgeries on wild animals is by no means an established best practice. So Lori and I thought it would be a good time to try to understand what is going on here and to place it into perspective and to understand the longer challenging campaign to manage these populations. I'm pleased to welcome Stephanie Boyles Griffin, senior scientist in the Wildlife Protection Department of the Humane Society of the United States. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Peter. How are you today? Fine. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So let's begin, maybe you can briefly start by explaining what the Bureau of Land Management has done and seeks to do at this time, and then maybe we can go back and explore a little bit how we got here. Okay, so um, the Bureau of Land Management has about 177 herd management areas. These are places in 10 states in the western United States where wild horses exist and are protected by federal law. And they are required uh, by mandate to manage those animals according to the Wild Horses and Burrows uh, Protection Act of 1971. That was an act that was passed uh, a long time ago. And one of those HMAs is an HMA called the Confusion HMA in Utah. And what BLM is proposing to do is unprecedented. They are planning to uh, gather and remove some of the horses from this HMA. But a proportion of those horses, wild mares, female horses, they are planning to conduct a surgical procedure known as ovariectomy via colpotomy. And that's a, a, a procedure where you make a, an incision in the back wall of the vagina and you surgically remove the animal's ovaries. 
Um, this is unprecedented because um, generally uh, fertility control, this is a method of fertility control, has been used to manage wild horses in the past, but nothing uh, as invasive as a method like this because there already exist two uh, or three um, fertility control immunocontraception vaccines that are used and of course that only requires a, a, a dart or a hand injection in the hip or gluteal region of the animal's body. And so the question becomes, why are they attempting to use this, this surgical procedure as opposed to using um, less invasive um, methods that already work very well? Okay. So there's a lot there to explore. Let's go way back, back, back. Where do these horses come from? So a lot of the wild horses and burrows that we see on the landscape today are animals that have been there, some of which have been there since the Spanish conquistadors uh, entered what was then known as the New World and became the, you know, the United States of America. Um, and so these are all animals that over time, some of them uh, have existed, their progeny have existed since that time. Others are animals that were abandoned um, by uh, people that were part of the um, pioneers that settled the West many, many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. Throughout the 20th century, these animals were rounded up and sold to slaughter by people that were known as Mustangers. And it was a way people actually made a living for a very long time. In the 50s, a woman named Wild Horse Annie actually saw these animals being carted to a slaughter plant um, on her way to work in Reno, Nevada. Um, this woman uh, became known as Wild Horse Annie. Her name was Velma Johnston. And she saw blood coming out of the back of one of these uh, transport trailers and didn't exactly know what it was until she followed the transport trailer to the processing plant and saw that these animals had not only been treated horribly when they were rounded up and put into these transport trailers, but they were being sent to slaughter. And then over the years, she and a lot of other people that care about these animals and how they're treated uh, mounted a successful campaign to have them protected under federal law. And that's, that's I go back to the law that I cited earlier, the Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act of 1971. Okay, so what did that act do at the time? So it, it, it put these animals into federal protection on the lands that they existed at that time, which, as I said, were 10, 10 of the Western states where they existed. And throughout the years, um, the BLM was, of course, mandated to manage them. They uh, exist, as I said before, in about 177 herd management areas throughout those 10 states. But be because there are a lot of external stakeholders that care about how these animals are managed um, and have differing opinions on how that should be done, the program has continued to be very controversial throughout the years. Yeah. Um, so you have a, a lot of different stakeholders that, um, that have different opinions on how these animals should be managed, how many should be there and how many shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very, very complex uh, issue. And you know, our, our goal always has been to work with external stakeholders and the federal agency, the BLM, to find humane, sustainable, effective ways to manage these animals and to, um, and to work towards managing you know, healthy, healthy herds on healthy rangelands. 
So is there any debate or any serious debate that these animals need to be managed? I would guess a lot of our listeners would say, just let them be free. Right, right. So the wild horses and burros do not have any natural predators. Um, and um, without some form of management to, um, to manage their population growth rate, Managers are sort of, um, they don't have a lot of options um, except for removing. And that's why more than 30 years ago, because there are no natural predators, because the only way to reduce the populations is to remove them, um, researchers began looking at ways to use fertility control as a means to suppress population growth rates so that those animals could be managed on the range because the issue is that once you remove them from the range, yes, they find adoptive homes, forever homes for many of them, but others end up in uh, government holding pastures in places like Oklahoma and Nebraska. And um, the problem with that is that the BLM has to pay those, those farmers to care for those animals in perpetuity. And if they keep removing them and putting them in these government holding facilities, the cost of caring for the animals you've removed starts to impact the overall budget that the BLM has to manage those animals. And therefore, uh, they start not having a whole lot of money to do management on the range. And that becomes a, an unsustainable path. And that's why the HSUS has been working with uh, a group of external stakeholders to try to get the BLM's program on a more humane, effective, and sustainable path through a proposal that we've been promoting called the Path Forward that is a comprehensive approach um, to manage these animals that focuses on doing strategic gathers, but importantly, that being coupled with the strategic use of fertility control. So strategic gather, that seems to be a term of art. I'm thinking helicopters and uh, stress. So yeah, so every year the BLM conducts wild horse and burrow gathers. So some people refer to them as roundups. They do it for all kinds of different reasons. Um, they do it to remove what they term in the law as excess animals, which, which I'll define very briefly for your, um, your listeners. So each HMA has an established appropriate management level or AML associated with it that's been determined by the BLM. So first of all, there are people that disagree with those AMLs for each of those HMAs. There is um, uh, people that think it's too high and people that think it's too low. So I'll start there. So, um, but for those appropriate management levels, any population of animals that is over what BLM has established as the AML are considered excess. So We'll start there. So those are the animals that they're targeting to remove when they say that they're going to do a gather to remove excess animals. And as with most wild animals, any effort to capture, handle, um, restrain, or transport them, no matter how carefully planned or executed, it's going to inevitably cause a certain amount of stress and discomfort for the animals involved, right? Um, and under some circumstances, it could actually lead to injuries or illnesses or even deaths. And they, those may be unavoidable. But the point I like to make is that that fact in no way reduces or minimizes the BLM's ethical obligation to manage wild horses to the greatest extent possible 
by minimizing the physical and emotional anguish that these wild animals endure during these gather operations. Yeah. So one of the ways that they, they can do that is by relying on these helicopter drive gathers as only a method of, of last resort and instead use passive gather techniques like water baiting, um, uh, nutrient baiting to get these animals to come in on their own. There's some work that's being done with uh, drones to see if we can lead animals into gated areas so that we don't have to use helicopter drive gathers. So there is a desire to find alternatives to helicopters for gathering these animals. Yeah. But the most important thing is that in order to conduct fertility control programs, we have to have a way of gathering a high proportion of the mares that we wanna treat and release back onto the range. And right now, the, in some of these really rugged, remote Western landscapes where these animals exist that are not easy to access, the helicopter drive gathers may be the most efficient way to do that. So that's sort of the rub. If you're really trying to not have to remove these animals from their families, from their homes, it's a difficult balance there because you can't do an effective fertility control program unless you're identifying and capturing and treating and releasing a high proportion of the known mare population out there. We are speaking with Stephanie Boyles Griffin and after our brief break, we are going to uh, hear a little bit more about the Bureau of Land Management proposal and why the Humane Society of the United States is opposed to it and alternatives to uh, open surgery will hear some of the uh, methods that are available, how effective they are, and, the, and what's involved in employing them. You are listening to Animals Today. Stick around. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 12th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. You can find us on your radio dial at animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow Animals Today on Facebook and join the conversation. So to stay up to date on the animal issues you care about, to learn from the top leaders and experts, and to discuss what you can do to help animals, join us each week. See you then. This is Dr. Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. December 4th is International Cheetah Day, and unfortunately they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long, muscular tail like a rudder and stabilizer permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. We are speaking with Stephanie Boyles-Griffin with the Humane Society of the United States. And uh, Stephanie, so Remind us, what is the Bureau of Land Management proposing? How far along are they? And uh, what's wrong with their proposal? 
So the Bureau of Land Management is proposing to take some of the mares that they removed from the Confusion HMA, the herd management area in Utah, and to conduct a surgical uh, sterilization procedure called ovariectomy via colpotomy, which, as I said earlier, is an incision in the back of the vagina that they use to access the ovaries to remove them. That yeah. seems pretty definitive. I mean, that would, yes. that would sterilize the animal for life. What's wrong with that? Well, number one, um, there, there's, this places these animals at an unnecessary risk, given that there are other alternatives that they can use that are far less invasive. And um, they're, they're, the research necessary to do these ovariectomies in the field has not been done yet, mm -hmm. and therefore it should not be considered a viable management tool at this time. Okay. These are the same robust, rigorous um, scientific processes and procedures that the BLM has required for other fertility control methods to be used on wild horses and burrows, like immunocontraception vaccines, gonacon, um, porcine zona pellucida, or PZP, and others. Okay, so you just listed some of the alternatives. Can you take a mm -hmm. moment and explain each one of those? Yeah, so um, immunocontraception vaccines are fertility control agents. They can be uh, administered either via hand injection or through remote opportunistic darting um, uh, with a dart protector. And they can provide one to three to five years of infertility depending on which one you use. The one that has been around the longest and the most research and, um, and management uh, studies have done, been done on is the porcine zona pellucida vaccine, which is also referred to as PZP or by its brand name, Zonastat H. And it requires a primer, uh, and then two weeks after that, a booster. And after that, the animal remains infertile for a year. In order for them to remain infertile, they have to be uh, boosted uh, annually. So that is one method. The problem with that method in places like the West is, as I said, a lot of these animals are very difficult to access. So it may not be logistically feasible to get to them once a year after you've, after you've administered their primer and their booster. So researchers have been trying to come up with ways uh, to find vaccines that last a little longer. Uh, and we have two. So one of them is Gonacon, which is also an immunocontraception vaccine. It requires a primer dose, um, but then after a couple of years, if you boost those animals, you can get three to five, maybe more years of efficacy after the fact, um, based on research that's been done on wild horses at Teddy Roosevelt National Park in, um, in um, I believe it's in South Dakota. So um, that's one. Another one is another formulation of the uh, PZP vaccine, which is known as PZP-22. And like Nagonacon, you get a certain amount of, uh, of infertility after your first inoculation. But when you boost them two years later, that's when you get three to five years worth of efficacy, which is the, the longer uh, acting uh, vaccine that agencies like the BLM are looking for. They'd really like one that once you administer it once, you get three to five years, but we have two vaccines that can get you three to five years of efficacy once you boost them the first time. So those are three immunocontraception vaccines um, that the BLM can and should be using to manage our wild horses and burrows. When the horses and burrows are uh, rounded up or uh, gathered and uh, held for some period of time and then released, 
Uh, do they suffer a notable damage or, or does their behavior change or they just go on and they're fine? You know, it, I think animals are like us. It depends on the individual. Um, but generally, you know, these are wild animals. Um, they uh, have never been handled by people. And therefore, uh, any interaction that with them should be limited as much as possible um, in order for, you know, to um, respect their well-being. And so, um, you know, the desire is to, if you have to capture them in order to inoculate them with a fertility control vaccine, that we should hold them for as small amount of time as possible um, in order to administer a booster for administering a booster before letting them go, uh, absolutely. But if the differences between bringing them off the range for the rest of their lives, holding them for a brief period of time, uh, boosting them and letting them go so that they can live wild and free for the remainder of their lives, that may be a good compromise. Yeah. Do we know or would you care to speculate what motivated the Bureau of Land Management to uh, take this action at this time? What's going on? I don't want to speculate. I think, like you said um, during our conversation, I think it's extremely um attractive for an agency to be able to touch an animal once and then never have to touch them again for the rest of their lives. But you have to balance that with the amount of risk and the pain and suffering that you're going to um, cause that animal to endure when you don't have to. Um, we have three really good fertility control agents that are registered for use in wild horses and burrows. And, um, because they already work well, there are a bunch of other methods that are coming up the pipe that probably are going to work as well, if not better, than the ones that we have. And so it really is a solution in search of a problem. We have been speaking with Stephanie Boyles Griffin with the Humane Society of the United States. Stephanie, to conclude, is this a time for individuals to get active and write letters? Is it the time to do that now? And uh, also, how can they learn more? Yes, I mean, I, I strongly recommend that listeners that care about this issue contact their members of Congress and urge them to um, to contact the BLM and tell them that they they want them to abandon plans to conduct these surgical procedures on mares at the Confucian HMA. The other thing that I think they should be doing is encouraging their members of Congress to support Path Forward. Again, there are a lot of external stakeholders, a diverse group of external stakeholders that have um, that, that have an interest in this issue. And it's really important to present members of Congress and the agency with sort of a united front on how we want the, the wild horses and burrows to be managed in the future, that we don't want surgical sterilization, that we want fertility control to be a primary means, but only if it's as uh, humane and sustainable as possible and surgical sterilization just isn't compared to the alternatives that the BLM already has available to them. Um, to learn more about this, you can certainly um, visit our website at humanesociety.org. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.